Priscilla Wald is a professor of English and women's studies at Duke University who has written extensively on the cultural politics of pandemics, past and future. Her books, Constituting Americans, Cultural Anxiety and Narrative Form, and Contagious, Cultures, Carriers, and the Outbreak Narrative, are necessary reading for our strange times. In this conversation, she offers some correctives to the distortions that tend to cloud our thinking about COVID-19 and outbreaks more broadly. One of the most profound ideas she presents is that health is a whole person, whole people, whole population issue, and that if we can't imagine health in these terms, global society will forever be at a disadvantage in addressing microbial threats to human survival. In Contagious, your book on the history of tracking and theorizing the spread of infectious diseases, you note that 1989 was a turning point at which emerging infections started to be talked about and identified as serious threats to global society. The problem, though, as you put it, is that while, quote, the effort to contain the spread of a disease may involve international cooperation, it is cast in distinctly national terms, especially in the United States. The issue, you argue, is that in moments of panic, nationalism tends to impede any possibility of a coordinated global response. Can you talk about the transition from SARS, the last big coronavirus outbreak, and COVID-19? What have we learned about the way that contagion intersects with the larger geopolitical tensions and ideologies that mark our age? Are we seeing this emphasis on national boundaries change with COVID-19 or gain new power? I think it's a great question. And to respond, I want to parse the we. So if we're talking about the government of the United States, I think we saw in this case with COVID-19 that there was not a lesson learned. There, there, I mean, the, the president of the United States denied that it was going to, that this problem was going to get to the U.S. shores. And we could have prepared long before we did had we been working more internationally. But as we've seen, this is not a president who likes to work internationally. And I do believe we're paying the price for that. On the other hand, I do think that the media has been more attentive to the global problem in a number of ways. There's still a strong political discourse about how, you know, what what COVID-19 is in America, what it is in Italy, et cetera. The responses have still been coordinated nationally, and we've seen the differences that um, different political responses and different cultural responses have made. Um, but I do have a sense of an increasing global awareness in the media, at least in part because this is a shared experience. So I see people reaching out to people in other countries. I have friends in China who have offered to send me masks, for instance, and have been very concerned about helping me based on what they're hearing about what's happening in the United States from their own experiences. This is what we did in China. This is what helped. Uh, this is how the disease has progressed. I hope you can, I hope you can learn some lessons from it. Uh, even if your nation isn't, here's, here's what has worked for us. So I'm seeing a lot of reaching out by people across national boundaries to other people. In Europe, it's been argued that there is a kind of last gasp of the European U Union being evidenced by the lack of kind of coordination, sharing of supplies. Italy really was sort of isolated 
and you know borders have been reinforced in many ways. Um, I wonder if we could look even further into the past and and consider maybe the the biggest accomplishment in global cooperation, which was smallpox eradication, uh, which required compromises across national lines, the ending of armed conflicts, and so on. What can we learn from the legacy of smallpox eradication? Uh, I just recently watched a short documentary by Errol Morris called The Demon in the Freezer, in which he exposes the fact that the United States and Russia are both keeping the smallpox virus on ice. And it argues the only logical reason for doing that is, in fact, germ warfare. Um, does that persistence of national interest to some extent undermine the the hope that that legacy gives us, the, the legacy of this eradication? I Well, I would say that it's a mixed legacy. So yes, I think that the eradication itself showed what cooperation can do and how beneficial it can be. And we've seen a little bit of that with COVID-19 where people are calling for ceasing of military conflict while everybody deals with with this disease that is affecting everybody, not equally, but it is affecting everybody. And I do think that it's exemplary of what an international response scientifically can do and can mean. At the same time, the narrative of the eradication of smallpox has divided global north and global south. And coming out of that effort, those efforts of eradication, looking back, there's still a sense that it was a an initiative led by the technology of the global north, which I think is is not entirely accurate, but it is the, the narrative and the sense that with the eradication of global, even at the time, with the eradication of global smallpox, catastrophic communicable disease would become a thing of the past. And it was evidence of civilization and so on. And so it reinforced a sense that if there were still diseases and in the global South, there were still, in some places, there were still and are still diseases like measles and malaria and so on that are still absolutely devastating. And somehow that gets narrated as a civilizational divide that look at the successes we've had in the global North eradicating these diseases we still need to work on these primitive places where diseases that should be eradicated are, are remain threats. And I think that that emerging that narrative that emerged remains a geopolitical problem because it's confusing primitivism with poverty, and it's confusing poverty as a problem of the global South rather than a global problem, which it is. Even the terms global north and global south really don't mean that much geopolitically anymore. They're much more complicated uh, geopolitically, geographically, but they remain in use. And all of these are indications of things we need to, I think, move beyond. And in terms of the actual terms we use, globalization is sort of eroding, in a way, our our ability to use them. I mean, um, the way in which the global market influences the response to things like H1N1, uh, the very fact that, you know, the World Health Organization is 80% of its funding comes from private companies and private donors. The market itself, some have argued, is simply not encouraging discovery, even in the so-called global north. But your um, response kind of leads nicely in the next question I had, which was, 
uh, again, based in a rereading of your book, Contagious, one of the most important arguments from that book is that notions of contagion actually help build this idea of the third world and did so by disguising the capitalist roots of poverty and reproducing what you call a germ theory of history, which imagines certain areas to, to just be inherently dangerous. Could you explain this idea that health, as you put it, became a measure of civilization? Yes, absolutely. Um, so as I've just been saying, health is health became an indication, a materialization of a sense of achievement that registered technological and civilization advances. And by contrast, people in poverty were described as primitive. And I think specifically of um, a May 5th, 2003 special issue of Newsweek uh, on the previous SARS pandemic, where people were described, people in Guangdong province in Guangzhou specifically, were described as living cheek by jowl with their animals in a primitive way. They were literally described with that terminology and the threat of the disease, as is typical of what I call the outbreak narrative, was seen as emanating from the global south to the global north, whereas expertise worked in the other direction. And this description of something as primitive and, and in juxtaposition with the modern city, and this was the danger, they show an airport, this is going to get out and threaten the world, is really an image of poverty, which, as I said earlier, does not emanate from the global south, but is a worldwide problem and has a lot to do with globalization, capitalism, and so on. And, and the, that confusion is obscuring the very conditions we need to be thinking about as we try to address the kind of problem we're dealing with now, both in health terms and in economic terms. And to back up just a little, in 1989, I write about this, there was a conference sponsored by Rockefeller Institute and the Fogarty Institute, I believe. Joshua Lederberg, was, who's a microbiologist, was the kind of leading spirit, and Stephen Morse at uh, Columbia. And it was when they identified the problem that they called disease emergence. So this is 1989. Um, they had, in the 70s, been hailing the eradication of smallpox as absolutely the thing that that was evidence that communicable disease, catastrophic communicable disease was going to be a thing of the past. But while they were making those pronouncements, uh, these phyloviruses that cause, say, Ebola, Marburg fever, et cetera, were popping up in remote areas around the globe. Um, and they came to light with HIV, which became a global pandemic. These people got together and they said, look, we have this common problem. Let's call it emerging infections, diseases that we're encountering for the first time. And they're the result of globalization and development practices. The world is becoming increasingly uh, interconnected and shrinking. And it's very easy for these things to circulate around the globe now. Uh, at the same time, the population is growing. We're moving into new areas and encountering these microbes that have barely been encountered before, if at all. And it's not a problem that we can solve exclusively with scientific medicine and with epidemiology, public health, and so on. These really have to, we have to change our day-to-day -day practices. We have to change our 
large-scale globalization and development practices. We really have to change the way we inhabit the planet. And that narrative is undermined by these questions of, oh, we still have these pockets of primitivism, and that's where the problem lies, and it's coming from the global south. It undermines exactly the argument that this group of people was trying to put out there. I think the the third worldification is still a narrative that we need to combat that is in our way of understanding this problem uh, at its roots. Absolutely. And um, to look sort of internally at the, the revealing of internal others, Andrew Cuomo describing the the, ha- the trend of unhoused people in subways as, quote, disgusting. It's been argued by people like M. Norbezi Philip that, you know, this language of we're all in this together actually ignores the fact that we are very much not all in this together. If we were all in this together, there would be a greater amount of fear if there was, in fact, a, a universal vulnerability. I'm wondering how you're critiquing this kind of resurgence of a highly racialized approach to thinking about outbreaks, both internally and externally. We could talk about the anti-Asian racism that seems to you know, gloss over a lot about the spread of this virus. It seems to me with COVID-19, none of these scare tactics were necessary, but Trump still sought to label this a Chinese virus. To what extent do you think Trump is individually responsible for feeding into these racial tensions and perpetuating the notion that, to quote you again, a monstrous microbe has emerged from the contagious spaces of a primitive hot zone to bring terror and destruction to the vulnerable civilized world? Yeah, well, I would say it's a both and to the question of Trump's responsibility and a kind of and what he's playing on, right? So Trump is absolutely fueling the racism that is intrinsic, that absolutely surfaces in new ways when there's a crisis like this, but it's never gone. And he could not ignite it if the ashes were not always smoldering on this particular issue. Just to break it down a little bit, I think that I think that, first of all, first and foremost, I I absolutely agree that we may be in this all together in certain ways. We're all susceptible, but we are not equally susceptible. And the statistics, once again, are bearing that out. They're bearing it out locally. They're bearing it out nationally. They're bearing it out globally. Certain lives are valued more than other lives. Some people are way more susceptible than other people and not because, not only because, obviously the susceptibility that's talked about is people who have underlying conditions, but people who live in poverty, people who don't have access to state-of-the-art healthcare, people who don't have access to proper nutrition and shelter, um, who, who have to live in more crowded circumstances who can't get away to their country homes are way more vulnerable and susceptible. And of course, people who have underlying conditions are already disproportionately the poor and the non-white. So these are socioeconomic questions from the get-go. And getting back to my long-winded answer to the previous question, we're not equally responsible for this either. There's a discrepancy in responsibility as well as vulnerability. And 
I think that those questions have to be front and center and and that has to be repeated and underscored. To what extent is Trump responsible? I mean, Trump has been Charlottesville, Virginia. Trump has been feeding this from his campaign. And that's one of the great horrors that we're all witnessing right now. And there was there was even a, some levity around the fact that one of his first things that he said was he wanted to close the border with Mexico when the U.S. had a much worse epidemic than Mexico had. Mexico should have been wanting to close the border with the United States. I mean, this was this was typical of the way that his notion of blame works and works irrationally. And yes, I, I think that the virulent anti-Asian racism that you describe was, again, evident. All of these things come out in these crisis moments are underscored. Again, they're underlying. Um, and they are problematic both because, as you say, they distract us from where the problem really is and how best to deal with it. And it's not by assigning blame. It's by figuring out what to do and uh, where to put our resources and how to cooperate both locally, globally, nationally, et cetera. Um, but also, it doesn't help anything to have people beaten up on the streets. And that kind of blame and violence only exacerbates the problem and creates terror and does not get people cooperating in the way they need to, to address the actual problem. And, you know, on that point, Kenyon Farrow, uh, AIDS activist and, and scientific researcher, has described the, the rise of a kind of white vigilantism. And this is evidence of the fact that racism, which you say has been smoldering for forever, um, has these real material consequences. And to jump off of that point, I was moved by the observation you make in your book uh, that in the context of a pandemic, quote, suffering and death should not be accepted as inevitable in one place and unthinkable in another. The specific dangers that are posed to marginalized people are now coming to the fore in ways that they have not been. Um, And you have governors in the United States attempting to sort of explain away the obvious gap and and susceptibility to COVID between white communities and communities of color by simply talking about underlying conditions that plague um, the latter communities of color. That narrative, I don't think, is necessarily convincing anyone that risk is fairly distributed in America. Do you think it's a powerful counter-narrative? Do you think we're seeing the, any sort of shift in the discourse toward, as you put it, telling the story of disease emergence and c- human connection in the language of social justice? Yes, I see that much more prominently in the media than in the past. And I've seen that growing since I began to study this problem in the mid-1990s, that the media has become, mainstream media in the U.S. has become increasingly sensitized to to the inequities and to the ways in which they are underscored in moments of crisis, especially around health issues. Um, Health disparities are just absolutely telling the story of a broken system and of gross inequities in the United States. And so I do see the media doing an increasingly responsible job to promote this counter-narrative. Just to sort of simply 
a kind of unignorable fact now, right? I wanted to shift gears to some extent and talk about a, a CNN documentary called Unseen Enemy that tries to engage with the global acceleration of movement between different societies, different nations, and the effects of things like climate change, rapid urbanization. Um, the main concern of this documentary is uh, the urgency, the, the anticipation of viruses you know, acting preventatively against emerging infections. But they also note that governments always seem to spend less on biosecurity than on national security. Others have argued that the market simply does not encourage the discovery of these kinds of things, uh, you know, antivirals and these kinds of things, that there's simply no return on investment if a virus is gone and you've produced an antiviral. Um, this is, I think, certainly apparent today. The Trump administration in 2007 inherited plans to make cheap ventilators. Nobody followed up. You know, 2018, the administration spearheaded by John Bolton, then National Security Advisor, also eliminated the Pandemic Preparedness Office from the National Security Council. And then, you know, most recently, Trump withdraws funding, I guess, temporarily from the WHO. Judy Segal has argued that making a healthcare crisis a crisis of money tends to shut down policy debate, but it seems as though COVID-19 is really making the two things indistinguishable. From your perspective, why is it fraught to engage with the perspective of economists who suggest that long-term, the cure of social distancing and national shutdowns is going to be more catastrophic than the disease? How can we think differently about, as you term it, the urgency of reforming healthcare delivery systems worldwide in ways that would prioritize the suffering and the humanity of those who will be disproportionately affected by the spread of disease? I think that's a great question. And again, I start with the ways in which human lives are valued differentially. So the question is, if we think about this in economic terms, who's going to benefit from that and who's going to suffer? And obviously, the most vulnerable are the people who are suffering both economically and in health terms. And that makes it a double crisis for some people and less of one, right, for others. So one question I would ask will be, who will be put non-voluntarily on the front line when we open up? And I think about Georgia and the Georgia governor opening up so that he can say, well, anyone who won't voluntarily go in to their jobs, no matter how risky those jobs are, will not be eligible for unemployment. He's giving people an impossible choice and he's getting himself out of having to pay unemployment. Um, so whose finances, and I think we need to, to ask this question, whose livelihoods will depend on doing so unwillingly? On, on having to go to work when they really are putting themselves in harm's way, not voluntarily by doing so, whose finances will benefit with no risk to themselves by opening up the economy, right? So once again, we're putting the heaviest burden on the people who can least afford it. And you ask, how can we think differently? This is where we need to be thinking about a redistribution of wealth, a redistribution of resources. And I'm talking here in the US specifically, this is not true, right, in Canada, of healthcare that is that has to be available at no cost to everyone. We have to understand 
health as a fundamental human entitlement and health care, right? And by health care, I don't just mean being able to go to the doctor, though of course I mean that, but I mean access to affordable, nutritious food, sufficient shelter, sufficient clothing, right? This is a, a, a health is, is not just the absence of disease. It's about livelihood and potential. And if we don't really begin to address those questions in different ways, in different places, right? So Canada has a different set of issues from the US. We have to first and foremost, get everybody access to healthcare. We have to do it because it's right, because the the distribution we have right now, the distribution of income, the distribution of resources is not just, period. So that's first and foremost, but everyone is adversely affected when we have a world in which people cannot circulate. And so thinking of this as the first, the way that we need to think about preventing, if not outbreaks, at least preventing out, outbreaks from becoming paralyzing pandemics, we need to think in terms of these redistributions. We also need to redistribute resources at the national level. We need to rethink how our money in every nation, how the budget of the nation is being spent. What's going to military? What's going to business? What's going to the healthcare infrastructure? These questions urgently must be re-asked. Um, I wonder if we could sort of theorize some of the, um, the language here around uh, the pandemic. You know, in particular, you're, you're seeing war metaphors in particular. Maybe we can talk about that in a moment. But I, I guess I'm, I'm curious about how particular viruses themselves are imagined. Matthew Hudson recently wrote in The New Yorker in an article called Attack Mode that viruses, despite being, in a sense, dead, right, not alive, are quite conniving, manipulating the host cell and so on. You've written extensively on the power of metaphor for simply understanding microbes. And, and there is this tendency even in the most scientific accounts to animate a microbial foe, as you put it. Viruses are seen as, and I'm quoting you again, enemies and invaders that insidiously commandeer the machinery of the cell to reproduce themselves. Can you discuss the slippage into ascribing agency to viruses in medical literature? Why, you know, why does their genetic versatility make them seem like predators to us? How can we maybe imagine viruses in less mystic terms? And or, you know, are you seeing the same mysticism reemerge in discourses around COVID-19? Oh, yes, absolutely. And the military metaphor is part of this. It's the dominant metaphor. But starting with just the animation of the virus, um, Joshua Letterberg has talked or wrote um, about the difficulty of human beings accepting the indifference of nature and that nature had no uh, special sentiment for the survival of the human species. And that that was something that historically, collectively, people really don't like to accept. And he also uh, has the epigraph at the beginning of the film Outbreak, where he says that calls viruses the biggest single threat to man's dominance on the planet. I preserve the masculine 
metaphor there as well, um, because it feeds into, I think, the militarism. But um, in any case, I think that there's almost a, a hubris to it. How can this invisible thing that is neither living nor dead, right, that relies on getting into a host living organism in order to metabolize and reproduce, how can this thing be defeating us, this thing that doesn't think? And so it's much easier for lots of reasons to attribute conniving, as you say, to, to attribute intelligence and, and deliberateness to this entity. So I think that there's a, a whole psychological set of concerns. It's just easier to think about. It's easier to mobilize our response. But the problem with that is that it takes away the human responsibility for the circumstances that the 1989 conference was, was trying to get at, right? That this isn't just a question of meeting an enemy on a battlefield. This is this has to do with the with our day-to-day -day practices that we have created the opportunity to encounter and in some cases even create these new microbes based on our practices. So if we attribute this ingenuity to the microbe, we are obscuring our responsibility for the conditions that have produced the outbreak and the pandemic. We also, to get back to the question of bias, we also, when we uh, animate the microbe in this way, we make it easier to connect it to certain carriers. And that is individuals or rather populations, groups whose behaviors or very being make them available in a particular culture for the, for the scapegoat role. So whether it's racism the immigrants that embody, the racialized immigrants that embody, you know, and are seen to be carrying this disease, or with HIV in the U.S., the population of homosexuals, male homosexuals, in whom the disease was first identified, heroin users, Haitians, right, the four H's, hemophiliacs, which was a different category. They were, they were the innocent that were affected, but these other three groups received the blame and the scapegoating. And that's all part and parcel of animating the microbe. It's very easy if you call something soul virus, for instance, to see it as, to see Koreans as somehow embodying the disease, soul haunting virus, or Wuhan virus, or Chinese virus. That's why people get beaten up on the streets. So these are two different dangers of animating the microbe. Um, that's very interesting and, and something I hadn't really considered before uh, fully, I don't think, the way in which it defers responsibility um, from, from the structure to particular uh, communities and, and types of people. But then there's also this, this element which Tess Laidlaw and John Moffat talk about in, in their article, Symbolic Cures, you know, this feeling of alienation. They're drawing from Kenneth Burke's work. This feeling of alienation when the world becomes unreasonable, there's a tendency to just push that, push that away. And so, you know, war, that, and we, maybe we can talk now about the metaphor of war, it, it empowers us in a way that I suppose politicians find mobilizing, but in ways that are potentially damaging. And, and there are alternative metaphors. You know, Pierre Dardot and Christian Laval have this article on the pandemic as a political trial 
Arundhati Roy has very influentially written that the pandemic is a portal. But this this you know military metaphor, I wondered what you thought about it in particular. I mean, do you think that trope of warfare is useful for communicating to the public because it is this kind of ubiquitous, well understood framework, even maybe an empowering one, or do you think it kind of works against solidarity? I think it can do both. I think it can be very useful in just very pragmatically unleashing certain funds that have been set aside specifically at, and again, I'm talking about the US here for defense purposes. So by using that metaphor, maybe it helps to allow for the release of those funds. I think it helps people understand the need for sacrifice. War is a sadly tried and true human experience, even if maybe it's been a while since the U.S. has experienced it on our shores, 9-11 being a possible act of war. But in general, this is not a U.S. experience, but it's one that we have historical experience of. And so it can mobilize people very quickly to understand what's happening and perhaps uh, more quickly make the sacrifices of sheltering in place and so on. I do think it has its flip side and I don't use it because I think it is more dangerous than not, uh, both for the reasons we've just talked about. Uh, if you make the the virus an enemy, again, you can you can make certain people who are seen as carriers because of the way the virus is named into those enemies, scapegoats, victims of violence. But also you, again, I underscore, you, you uh, deflect uh, human responsibility for it. And you also exacerbate the kind of us-them that a crisis often brings out, right? A crisis can unify, we're all in this together, it can also really underscore the us-them that is at the heart of collective identity generally, with lots of disadvantages, right? So certain people seen as more responsible than others, people blamed for their behaviors that they can't control, people living in poverty somehow blamed for uh, producing the problem. And so I think that the, the microbial metaphor works against, once again, the 1989 message of who is responsible that we really desperately need to be thinking about. I wonder if we could talk about the role of experts. You know, expert voices play obviously a key role in, um, you know, determining behaviors. They can be very influential. And Anthony Fauci is perhaps the, the most influential voice in the United States. Uh, he made a point in a recent PBS NewsHour appearance that we should not get wedded to a model because models can be misleading. It, it struck me as interesting coming from you know an expert who is supposed to be occupying this position of a kind of unwavering certainty, perhaps. But the issue, it seems to me, is whether or not Fauci will be listened to, whether his words will be uh, heeded at the highest levels of government. And Judy Segal, again, writes that during the SARS crisis, a, a main problem was trying to properly amplify the voices of experts to address the crisis. We see again with this crisis, a serious issue with misinformation coming from people like Bolsonaro in Brazil and Trump in the US especially. Is the primary issue here that contradictory messages mean differing degrees of urgency? What antidotes perhaps to people like Trump and Bolsonaro really exist, given that 
when someone like Fauci concedes that an earlier response in February would have certainly saved lives, Trump immediately starts campaigning for himself and, in fact, threatens to fire Fauci. First of all, I do think that Fauci is right about the importance of not being blinded by precedent, using precedent, but keeping an open mind that, hey, maybe this is something different. And, you know, I talk about the outbreak narrative as a technology. And it's something that is very useful for epidemiology in that it can help people very quickly identify a problem and use precedent to think about, well, in the past, this has been where this problem has come from and, and let's start there. But it, but as with any technology, you see some things more clearly and it obscures other things. And I think Fauci is absolutely terrific and right on the money when he says we can't be blinded to new solutions or new ways of looking at a problem, entertain possibilities that this is different from the past. All of those things are urgently important when you're dealing with a crisis situation like this one. Um, as far as how to get people to listen to experts, well, first of all, I do think my sense is that certainly in the U.S., based on what I'm seeing on social media, people are very broadly listening to Fauci, including people who often don't listen to the scientific experts. And so I do think that there has been an increasing urgency that people feel that have made them say, okay, well, who actually knows what's going on here and can help us? And Fauci is extremely popular in the US. At the same time, yes, there are people who are listening to the wrong sources, um, people who ingested disinfectants because of Trump's absurd suggestion. And how to combat that is a problem that I hear media experts talking about all the time. Um, when you have news like Fox News, I will express my particular bias, but it's, it's based on having watched Fox News and seen the way, I mean, any, any media you could argue is going to tell part of a story. It can't tell the whole story. It's hard to nuance. I appreciate the difficulty that the media has, but Fox News almost always really misreports in extreme ways what's happening. And when you have so much of a population getting their news from a source that is not reliable, I, I think that is a very dangerous situation. How to fix that? I have no idea. That is, uh, and then the other problem is, you know, one of the broken things that I think this pandemic has made very clear to people in the U.S. is that we have too much unchecked power. And some of our safeguards that have been, been built into our system are not working very well. But the question is, now that we are in this situation that is a crisis on some level for everybody and on multiple levels for some, will people start listening? Will more people see that our system is broken and that we have to, I mean, I'm talking here about the U.S. in particular, will we see that it is urgently time to step back and do a serious stock taking and see the areas that are desperately in need of reform? And that includes having too much concentrated power in one place or just a, a very small collection of places and not enough room for experts to step in and say, 
we really need to be above politics here and talk about how to address this problem in scientific, medical, economic, humanitarian terms. You know, I'm interested in the conflicting reports on the you know effectiveness of remdesivir as a potential treatment. There's there's clearly a desperate desire for for trustworthy information on remdesivir, but there are these conflicting studies that it becomes very difficult and a time of great urgency to to simply know whose voices and which studies to trust and how to go forward. Obviously, it's more convoluted when you have Trump advocating for the use of anti-malarial drugs and injecting disinfectant. The anti-malarial claim caused shortages of anti-malarial drugs globally for, for people that actually required those drugs. So these things have global material effects as well. Now that I'm more aware of, of Fauci as an as a expert on emerging infections, I've started to see him pop up in a number of documentaries that focus on pandemics. One such documentary, We Heard the Bells, talks about the devastation caused by the uh, 1918 Spanish flu. In that documentary, Fauci again expresses a kind of optimism around this technological development, the the fact that we've learned from past pandemics. In particular, he's talking about, of course, these kinds of biomedical advances, the development of drugs like remdesivir and so on. Um, Similarly, CNN's Unseen Enemy, which I mentioned, describes the 21st century as a race between the risks associated with modernity and modern technological tools meant to combat these risks. Has the dominance of a faith in technology, this ability of advanced medicine to save us, made us to some extent complacent about the real global risks to health and structural causes of illness that we currently face. Yes, it has. And, you know, again, it's what we've been talking about with the 1989 conference, right? That you can't, scientific medicine is crucial at this time. Vaccines, pharmaceuticals, epidemiological work as well, even quarantine. These are, these are the things we need in the midst of a crisis. And I am very pro-science. I'm very happy we have this technology. I do have faith in experts, in the technology, in the systems they've developed, and they're very, very important. At the same time, the experts themselves are telling us we cannot rely exclusively on those things to save us. Science is a slow process. It's going to be a very long time before we have a vaccine, a short time in the context of human life, but a long time, you know, to wait indoors, right? But science is slow and we, we need to be patient and wait for that. In the meantime, we need to be thinking about these broader structural issues that I've been harping on that I, I deeply believe need to be changed. And we need to see these problems, not just in terms of Uh, scientific medicine and epidemiology, but health, again, is a whole person, whole people, whole population concern. And it isn't just about dealing with disease. It's about living justly and equitably and uh, responsibly in the world. So yes, I, I do think that. I do think there's another documentary in which Fauci um, figures significantly, and that's how to survive an epidemic, which is about about ACT UP. And the Fauci was demonized by Larry Kramer and other ACT UP activists 
for not quickly enough allowing people who were facing pretty much certain death to take experimental drugs before their before it was time and it's it shows how they came to a mutual understanding how fauci began to listen to the criticisms and changed his approach to treatment and and did make drugs available more quickly and so on but also how larry kramer and act up came to appreciate the the tests the testing that took time that made these drugs safe enough for people to take and also like even if people who were facing certain death took certain drugs that didn't work it meant that they then couldn't take other drugs that maybe did and so it's complicated and they came to a mutual understanding and evidently Larry Kramer and and uh, Fauci Anthony Fauci are really close friends now so you know that's an interesting story to tell as well about how both sides need to be listening and how these are very complicated overdetermined issues well said and and i think that that film david francis film is one of the most remarkable documents of that kind of struggle for a very complex fraught solidarity across deeply established political and ideological lines right paula trichler um, has a book, How to Have Theory in an Epidemic, that similarly argues that we we don't just need technological solutions; we need social solutions, and those are those are difficult. Those are often the product of social movements. I'm glad you brought that up. I just want to plug that book. It's a wonderful book, How to Have Theory in an Epidemic. I underscore it. It's a really important book. It talks about the intersection of these things, and and I think we could probably address this in terms of. Uh, the rise of a kind of a different technological solution for combating COVID-19 that we've seen emerge. This technique of using cell phones to track the movements of infected and non-infected people. We've seen reports on the, this, the, the vital role of phone tracking in South Korea to help flatten the curve there. The Verge reports that Apple and Google, two competitors, are trying to collaborate to encourage citizens to download apps that will provide constant data to government agencies in order to track the transmission of the virus. To some extent, the urgency of the, the epidemic is, is displacing of political questions. And those political questions matter, especially if you're in an authoritarian country that is already using surveillance. Arundhati Roy has talked about the unprecedentedly quick way in which people in India have, have downloaded these kinds of apps. Do you think this digital frontier is the real answer? Or are we too quickly ignoring privacy concerns due to the panic produced by the pandemic? That's um, a great question. And I would say this is a, if not the fundamental public health paradox. And I think about Mary Mellon, Typhoid Mary, Gaetan Dugas, Patient Zero. You have a problem. It's very easy, maybe not very easy, but one understands why in the middle of a crisis everyone says well the individual the individual rights don't matter it's the rights of the group and and you know utilitarianism we we've got to think of the good of all and restrict the rights of the individual without remembering that when we're not in the midst of a crisis those individual rights and freedoms are protecting not everybody equally again but are are designed to protect the population from totalitarianism as well. And so 
that that balance, that conflict that happens that really is very starkly um, uh, visible in a crisis is, I think, what we're talking about here. Do we cooperate with these measures and what measures get put in place to not to, to protect us from creeping fascism, creeping totalitarianism, and so on. And the real question, though, comes back to the differential, differential ways in which people are treated, right? So if I'm somebody whose experience of privacy violations has been a constant factor in my life, if I'm, say, a young Black man in the United States, I personally, imagining myself in that situation, would not be very quick to agree to this because of how my experience with rights violations has played out. I, as a middle-class white woman, can say, yes, I am perfectly willing to take this risk, but that's because I haven't had really negative experiences of these rights violations in my day-to-day life. So I really think we need to think about who is going to be vilified. And again, we see that with Gaetan Dugas. We see that with Mary Mallon, right? An Irish immigrant was very readily scapegoated because of transmitting um, typhoid and being unwilling to give up her only means of income, which was cooking, whereas a, a white male dairy farmer who infected more people than Mary Mellon and who also wouldn't give up his livelihood did not become vilified in the same way. Or Gaetan Dugas, who cooperated with epidemiologists and was crucial in helping them figure out the way that HIV was, what it was and how it was being transmitted, gets demonized at some, as someone who was willfully uh, exposing people. And there's a whole sense now that that is, was a deeply unfair uh, depiction of this individual. Those individuals belonged to groups that were readily stigmatized and whose privacy was readily not valued or respected or whose integrity was not valued or respected. And I I think that we need to ask whose rights are going to be protected and whose are not. So again, it's a, it's a, I mean, I I think it's a very important technology. Uh, I know that Fauci is someone who says, you know, we need to do this in order to be able to move about the world safely and protect people. And I'm all for it. And I would absolutely, as I say, do it, but I understand why others would be more reluctant and we need to have that conversation if we're going to use this technology. Thanks for that. I wanted to talk about a a different um, narrative, that of the kind of origins in the animal world of these viruses, which I think is entering into public consciousness in a new way right now. The uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention has an interesting uh, line on their page regarding zoonotic diseases. It starts by talking about the, quote, many benefits that animals provide to human beings from food to fiber, as well as sport and companionship. It, to me, ignores the fact that, and we're seeing this uh, crop up in the uh, debate around Trump keeping pork farms open in spite of all of the risks that are associated with that. 
the risks of outbreak. I think for me, one of the most important points you make in Contagious is that we really fundamentally need to rethink our relationship to the animal world, given that something like 70% of infectious diseases are zoonotic or originating in animals. But, you know, really, what does that mean to kind of reckon ethically with the ways that our subordination and exploitation of animals puts us globally at risk of even more virulent forms of communicable disease, such as H5N1? How do we break down this binary human animal in the wake of COVID? And to what extent do we see a third worldification happening in accounts of the animal origins of these viruses? Yeah, again, I think these are great questions. And I refer back, for one thing, to the way that people living, quote, cheek by jowl with their animals uh, in Guangdong province was represented as primitivism rather than poverty and was seen as a problem with that lifestyle rather than an economic problem that had been forced upon people. Also, I do think it's important to look at some of the unregulated wet markets, and that's a very, very broad term. I think people need to understand that wet markets refers to a whole range of things, like, you know, from basic butchers to, you know, the the unregulated depictions that that we've been seeing. But in the U.S., I know uh, people have been very quick to point to wet markets without thinking about U.S. practices, how we live with animals and how we treat the animals that we are going to eat. Uh, we have created a lot of a, a huge problem of antibiotic resistance because of the way we deal with our animals, because of those practices and other animal diseases, because we because these animals are so unhealthy and are pushed together and crowded together, and we are producing these diseases in the U.S. as well. And so worldwide, I think we have to think seriously about human-animal relations. You know, I'm talking in health terms, but I also think there are ethical terms. I don't, uh, you know, I think about the orcas and, you know, that's not a food issue, but um, the orcas that, that cry when they're uh, babies are taken from them. And we have to think about those practices globally in terms of how we treat animals as other living beings. So we've got health issues, but we've also got uh, ethical issues that are not just health issues. Um, and finally, and uh, I, I want to give a shout out again to um, two really terrific books on avian flu preparation by Natalie Porter and Frederick Keck, who are both anthropologists. Got them here, so because I just wrote a review of them. Uh, Fred, Frederick Keck's book is Avian Reservoirs, and Natalie Porter's book is Viral Economies. And both of them talk about not just thinking about the animal-human relations, but throwing in the third term of pathogens. So pathogens are living entities as well. Frankly, they don't, and I'm not, asking for ethical treatment of pathogens. That's a whole different set of questions. But, but rather to think about the ways in which we live with our animals and how all of us live with our viruses. So when we treat livestock, turning living organisms, and I'm, I'm citing both uh, Keck and Porter here, tur turning living organisms into commodities, right, um, by making them livestock, we're also, as I've just said, creating the condition for the emergence of pathogens and the circulation of pathogens and the uh, zoonotic 
diseases that jump species. So in all of these ways, we're, you know, and I'm also talking about economic terms, right? We put these animals together, they're more likely to get sick if they're not properly cared for. And that's people's livelihoods as well. So, and food sources. So in every way, shape and form, we need to rethink all of these relations. The last question I wanted to ask you, because I've taken quite a bit of your time, has to do with pop cultural representations of pandemics. Your book spends a lot of time analyzing these kinds of texts, and this is because, as you make clear, pop culture, especially in the 1990s, provided a way to educate the public about the threat and the science of deadly infections, and seemed to also provide science with a powerful tool for generating the fear that was thought to be required in order to get the public to take these threats seriously. More recent pieces of pop culture, like Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film Contagion, and TV shows like Containment and Helix, have seen a massive spike in viewership, despite or maybe because they have this alarmist and even apocalyptic energy, as you've termed it. Do you think these stories give us faulty frameworks for conceiving the fight against pandemics? And how influential do you think these stories still are, given that we're now witnessing the realization of some of their projections? I think that these films and and popular fiction as well are really crucial in creating the thing I call the outbreak narrative, which emphasizes in ways that, again, I think are deflecting our attention it emphasizes the fact that you know we're mid crisis these these are not stories about the big issue the big issue of how we're living in the world would not make for a sensational tale well maybe it could but not so easily or a detective story or whatever and so it emphasizes the mid crisis uh situation where we rely on our epidemiologists and our scientific researchers, and they're struggling. There's a, a mythic battle, really, and this is where the animated microbe comes in again, a mythic battle between this monstrous microbe, the, this threat, um, and the scientific rationality and uh, epidemiology for the fate of humanity. And it acts in a very mythic, when it's apocalyptic in this way, uh, it has a mythic structure where, you know, there's this battle, it's species threatening, and it's resolved at the end. And it, it's a kind of rejuvenation of humanity as it is, without challenging us to think about what the bigger issues are and how to live differently, right? So it's a reaffirmation of humanity and know-how and, you know, that, again, that kind of technology, science, solving all of our problems so that we don't have to make the day-to-day changes that we should be making for all the reasons we've been discussing. And I look at the media and I think, you know, the journalists have a very difficult task. We can't ask these films to be journalism, but they serve some of the same functions of telling us we need to take a problem seriously. But, you know, so how do you do that and also tell the story of how much more is involved in the solution than waiting for science to solve the problem. Priscilla, I can't thank you enough. I'm so grateful for your expertise, your engagement with the complexities of these issues. I think right now there is a real need for clarity in the face of these dangerous deflections and and some of these easy stories that we are 
tempted to tell ourselves about what's happening. It's, you know, voices like yours from my perspective that we, we need in this moment. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.